reading from the book of John, chapter 14, um, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's try that. That's better. And again, please keep your Bibles open this morning. How about I take this off, huh? Uh, please keep your Bibles open this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 14, following it pretty closely. Again, that's something you're going to get a lot of here is we love the Bible. We love to read the Bible. We love to, to respond by giving you the Bible to, to um, speak back at points in our service. We're going to be having a sermon now to hear, again, from God himself, the hope that he offers us, not to... You don't need my wisdom. You don't need my two, two cents. We need God's word. And so please keep the, uh, your Bible in front of you. Um, you can also use your phone. That's perfectly legitimate. But nonetheless, we're going to need God's word today. Um, now, I, uh, if you're just now joining us in our service, again, my name is Evan Skelton. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to extend, again, a Merry Christmas to you all. Merry Christmas to you all. Anybody feel weird, though, right now, wishing somebody a Merry Christmas? I... I don't, but I, I know that many do after uh, December 25th. As soon as December 26th hits, we want to stop saying it, and what do we get to next? Happy New Year, right? So you're almost like trying to, which one is right now? Well, I want to tell you and give you full permission. If you're a Christian, right now is the perfect time to wish somebody Merry Christmas. Here's why. Historically, did you know that Christmas celebrations, celebrating Christmas itself, waited until the 25th? Historically, we, well, let's just look at our culture right now. So we, we start celebrating Christmas, again, as soon as Thanksgiving is done. Some of you way before that, some of July. Like, you guys, you're, you're ready. You've already decked out the house. You've, you didn't even take down the Christmas lights from last year, right? You just flicked them back on. This, uh, some of us, you know, we've been celebrating Christmas all year round. But in church history, for about 1,500 years, again, the season of Advent, it waited to celebrate Long, practiced a longing for Christ, a longing for his advent, which means coming, his coming as a baby, but then his second coming, which we're going to be looking at today as a conquering king. They waited until Christmas really to begin the party. And then that whole time of Christmas time after that week, after the day of Christmas was a time of celebration, of feasting, of really beginning to celebrate what has come in Jesus. You see, I know many of us, as we are sick of Bing Crosby, we're sick of the eggnog and the tinsel, we've already unwrapped what we wanted anyway, so it's time to move on. Well, I want to say, again, Christians celebrate this totally differently, because the celebration is not really about any of the gifts that you might have received on the 25th, whether or not you're disappointed in them. It's about the gift that has been given, and everything that came bound up with him, which is what we are really going to be looking at today, and it's that gift that we are still waiting to possess in full. Then again, um, I, there's a Christmas song, I think, that makes me think of this quite a bit, and it's uh, always been one of my favorites, um, called Joy to the World. Anybody know this? Carol, right? So, of course, we sing it a lot. You might hear it on the radio. 
I'm not going to sing it for you right now, but Joy to the World, uh, do you know it's actually not a Christmas song? It might surprise us, but listen to the lyrics, and I wish I'm going to read to you in just a second. It's actually a song that's not necessarily about Jesus' first coming as much as it's about his second. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far, far as the curse is found. I don't know about you, but my world is still full of thorns and thistles. I don't mean literally, I mean, I've gotten stuck in a bush once or twice, but I mean thorns and thistles as in the effects of sin upon our, upon our world. When we say that the world is broken, not what it should be, that's what we are referring to here. And joy to the world is talking about a day in which those sorrows will become, in a sense, untrue. As the effects of Christ's victory upon the cross are finally, his will is done everywhere, over all things. You know, I'm, this disappointment, this anxiety that we face, chronic illness that seems like it will never end, the Bible assumes a world in which it will, and will come particularly, exclusively through Jesus. You know, our hearts, even this side of Jesus' birth, still are troubled, just like the disciples that we read about in John 14 and we'll look at. But today, again, we're going to look at the comfort that Jesus is coming, specifically his second coming, would provide them. Today we're going to turn from considering Jesus' first advent— his first coming to consider his second. And we're going to back to the same section of scripture where we've been in, which I realize was, again, not the most Christmassy of passages, but to look at the Last Supper, the famously called Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples. And we're going to be looking at it in four parts, John 14, verses 1 through 6. Number one, a peace. Number two, a place. Number three, a preparation. And number four, a path. You ready? Start with the first, a peace. Now, before we jump into these verses specifically, I want to set the stage for us a little bit. All of us, again, what, all of what we just read in these verses, it's taking place during a meal, specifically a very significant Passover meal. A Passover meal uh, that was already uh, very important for the average Jewish person, but this one particularly because it sees its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus takes some of the symbols in the Passover meal and points and, and, and applies them to himself, including the Lord's Supper that we are going to be participating in today if you're, if, you, if you're a believer. This meal, though, this last meal, the disciples don't realize would be their last meal with Jesus before, or at least prior, prior to his resurrection. Everything's about to change. And during this meal itself, Jesus has said some very strange and some very, very difficult things. You see, Jesus keeps suggesting to the disciples that things are about to change in a really drastic way. And that's strange to the disciples because in many ways things, things seem to be great. They, don't seem to, they, they couldn't be better. Jesus seems to be widely loved and adored by the crowd. Sure, not among the religious leaders, but surely they'll come around, especially once Jesus starts to get his way with the Romans. And as soon as he lets those Romans have it, there his 12 will be, his, his disciples at his right hand. And yet Jesus seems to throw a, a wet, like a wet blanket over everything. He seems to suggest that everything's about to change and not for the better, at least immediately. It's going to change in a very difficult way. 
In fact, he suggests that his disciples, even disciples as loyal as Peter was, would betray him. It's a strong thing to say to your closest friends as you're about to turn on me. You're about to abandon me. But then, even more shocking, he suggests that he himself would be leaving them. It was a very uncomfortable and confusing evening, to say the least. Of course, Jesus is readying them for his death. An event that Jesus is not surprised about. In fact, it is where Jesus is intentionally heading. He sees the cross as bound up with the mission that God has given him to do. Jesus knows, nonetheless, though, that that cross will mean that he loses, he will lose everything. And right now, especially now, you can imagine that he really needs his disciples to be on their A game. If he's about to lose everything, if he's going to his own death, he needs supporters, he needs friends. He needs those who would comfort him as he says as he goes and he, he finds his own soul, he says, becomes greatly troubled, troubled even unto death, sorrowful unto death. At this point, he really does need his disciples to be on their A game. Still, it's fascinating, though, at this point, that it's not his own trouble he's concerned with as much as it's his disciples. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is concerned most about the disciples' fear and anxiety? At a time when he would need the most comfort, he is giving out comfort. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Friends, have you ever found yourself in a relationship that's very one-sided? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, where you seem to give and to give and to give to a person and it doesn't seem you get much in return? Well, truth be told, we are all in that kind of relationship with God, but we're on the bad side of it. We are not the giver, we are the taker. And what a picture of God's love here right from the very start, especially when we consider that when it comes time for Jesus to be betrayed, a matter of hours after these words are spoken, these men that he's extending comfort to won't exactly be pictures of courage. In fact, it his death will bring the worst out of his disciples. His closest friends will run from him, falling then not just into fear, but into deep shame, into deep despair. Jesus' words, let not your hearts be troubled, don't refer only to the present and the anxiety and confusion they're facing at this Last Supper. What in the world could Jesus mean by all these things? But to a future, to the future where they're going to need comfort more than ever for moments when so far as they will see it, they have lost everything, and they have seen the absolute worst in themselves. They will need comfort more than ever at that time. Do you need that kind of comfort today, though? Are you afraid over the future? Have you just seen terrible things that you are capable of speaking and doing? Are you confused as to where God could be in the midst of it all? Is your heart troubled. Jesus extends peace. But notice this peace is bound up with God. It is even bound up with Jesus himself. The statement, believe in God, believe also in me, may not sound all that surprising to us. We might hear a statement like that and say, as if Jesus is saying, oh disciples, don't you realize you've got a lot of support around you? You can trust God. And guess what? You can trust me too. 
Only these two statements are much more linked in Jesus' mind. To trust in God is to trust in Jesus. To trust in Jesus is to trust in God. In other words, Jesus is saying what you need most, what you will need later, especially when the bottom falls out of your life, is to root yourself in God, to lash yourself to him by trusting me. You see, the disciples don't understand that Jesus' death isn't the greatest defeat for the kingdom of God. It is its greatest victory. It is the means of ensuring that all of God's promises come true. It is the assurance that God's promises are yes and amen, finally, in Christ. Jesus' death, its purpose is, as Jesus puts it, it's to prepare a place. Which leads to our second part, the place, a place. I have to tell you, though, um, before we look at this specifically, there are a lot of crazy ideas out there about heaven. A lot of crazy ones. It seems that every year we have a new uh, first-hand account uh, that's of someone who has seen the great beyond and come back to, to tell us, and oh, making a huge steaming profit along the way. Friends, I have to, uh, let me just tell you that many of these authors have admitted uh, later in life that they made the whole thing up, um, including there was a one famous story about a young boy who gives his testimony. He said later that his parents put him up to it. But even more importantly, the Bible gives us all we need to know about heaven. But still, let me ask you, uh, what do you imagine heaven to be like? Now, it's very normal for, for people to belong to, to come to this church who are from a variety of different places spiritually. So even if you don't share Christian assumptions about heaven, what do you imagine that afterlife looking like? If we let Hollywood fill in the gaps for us, maybe it's a place full of clouds where we, like angels, lounge about playing our harps all day, which, just to be honest, sounds terrible. Maybe it's an eternal concert of Joy FM. No, again, that sounds terrible to me. No hit, I mean, no, I don't mean to throw any shade on Joy FM, but Jesus speaks of heaven as being instead like coming home, a real home. Some of us have all these nostalgic memories bound up with home. They come out particularly during Christmas time, and yet I realize some of us don't even know what this might be like. No place has felt like home to us in our entire life. And for some of us, home was, to be honest, hell on earth. It was a boiling pot of manipulation, fear, and maybe even abuse. It was less a refuge than a prison that you needed to escape. A painful memory to leave in the rearview mirror. Sounds like a country song, actually. And yet, no matter what your experience of home... What we all hold in common is we long, we have a longing for a true home. A place where we are safe. Where we are known and where we are loved. You know the Bible makes sense of this longing for us? God has made us to experience home. It's why he created the world to begin with. That he created it to, for the worship of his name. He created good things that would be to the praise of his glorious name, for his glory, and that was also for our joy, for our good. He made it humanity's home. But home in the Bible is not actually bound up with so much, where, so much with where we live as home is bound up with who lives with us. When Adam and Eve 
were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, or Israel was dra- dragged from the Promised Land into exile, they didn't just lose the old homestead. They lost God with them, the essence of home. This side of the fall of humanity into sin, none of us, it turns out, are at home. We can pour all kinds of money into upgrading our addresses, but it will not change the fact that, according to the Bible, we are all spiritually homeless. And unless we have God, unless we can live with him without anything standing in the way of that relationship, we will never know, we will never be at home. And yet notice what Jesus says he's about to do and why he says he has to leave. Not just that he's going to, but he has to leave. He describes a home, a home where his father has many rooms, somewhere where there is space to spread out and thrive. Jesus is going there. He's going to his father's home. I go, why? To prepare a place for you, he says to his disciples. You know, there are, again, many silly ideas about heaven. One concerns this passage, actually, or at least, a, unfortunately, a misinterpretation of this passage, specifically that phrase, in my father's house are many rooms. Some have translated that as there are many mansions, Anybody ever heard this before? If you're, if you're not familiar with that, that's okay. But that's, again, uh, that works well for American materialism, conveniently. Uh, the dream of getting my mansion someday with my big screen TV and my Porsche in the driveway. Uh, maybe a swimming pool and a big yard to play football if you're audio adrenaline. If you've missed that reference, that's okay. But it's not uh, the point actually at all. I realize translating this as rooms in my father's house may feel a little disappointing. Oh, great. I, get a, I guess I get a room. Yippee. But the, where's my mansion? Obviously, this, is, this might feel disappointing. But the point here is not, again, how much space we get in heaven or how lavish that space is. The point is who we get to live with. We get to live with the father in his house, a father who is no longer far off from us, who is not hidden from us, who is just right down the hallway from us. We get to live in his house. That's the whole point here. Again, notice where Jesus then locates the real goodness of heaven. The real beauty of heaven is not a mansion. It's not the fulfillment of all our materialistic lusts or even... I'm sorry if this steps on some toes. The true joy, the true beauty of heaven is not even that we get reunited with loved ones as much as, us, as much as it's right and good to look forward to that. The real beauty of heaven, the real joy of heaven, and make no mistake, it is, the re, it is real beauty, it is real joy, even more real and concrete than anything you have ever known. The real home of heaven is the Father himself. One reason this is so practically significant, let me give it to you. You know, that this means that Christians can be unimpressed with their home in the here and now. And Jesus and I bought our first home. We are here finally putting roots down in St. Louis, and we're very grateful for it. And yet even as we praise God for the home that we're in, I'm talking about a physical home, we're going to get beyond that to the sense of home that we're all after, but we praise God for our home we have to be careful how much time and money goes into it. Anybody else there? And how much effort can go into securing just a little more comfort, just a little more safety for ourselves and our children, especially in a culture that worships creature comforts. Instead, Grace and I have to remind ourselves and our kids where our home actually is. It's interesting. Peter, in his first letter, 
uses some really fascinating titles to refer to Christians, Christians who have lost a whole heck of a lot, identity markers that they can slap on their name tag. And one of these identity markers, one of the most significant identities that Christians can claim for themselves is sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. Why those titles? Why would he say this is the identity of a Christian? Something that they should, if they describe themselves to others, what, how do, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a sojourner in exile. Well, what these have in common is that these people who are sojourners in exiles, they were people who were away from home. In other words, no home can compare to the home we already have in the Father. And there is real danger in forgetting that. In getting too comfortable in the here and now, in scratching out a life with as, with as much comfort and fun as I can muster, that is until I get my upgrade in heaven, right? There's real danger in forgetting that our truest home cannot be experienced here, and yet will be experienced with him. No, the Christian maintains a sense of restlessness, calls out that restlessness, owns that restlessness, as the North African theologian Augustine put, put it, until our hearts rest in him. Christians know that there is no home like his home. And one of the most significant ways they show off what it means to be a Christian is not just to realize their temporary homelessness, but to live like it. To live lives of generosity, of self-giving love. A life which knows to whom they belong and who holds their future in his grip. This just changes the way that we spend our money, yes. But it changes in how we act towards the future. It changes in the kind of panic or lack of panic that we demonstrate. A Christian who knows where their home is and that home is coming for them, that home can never be taken away, they will never need to move from that home or have it robbed from them, allows them now to deal with unpredictable circumstances, to realize even the, tr the trinkets and treasures that they have in their possession aren't theirs to begin with. They're not their satisfaction and security. In fact, they become generous to give them to those who are in need. Someone who has their home in God is eager to give taste of that home than to others. But then let me ask, what does it mean that Jesus goes to prepare a place? If this is the place, what does it mean that Jesus goes to prepare a place? Let's look at number three, a preparation. As I mentioned, Grace and I bought our first home, and it seems like there's always going to be more projects for me to accomplish. I miss the days of having a landlord. Even right now, I'm thinking of gutters which need to be cleaned. I'm thinking of baseboards that need to be nailed down um, or of grout that needs to go on the tile. There's all sorts of different things that need to take place. And there's nothing like home renovations to show off, I mean, just to be honest, my absolute ignorance and clumsiness. I mean, just ask uh, Jamie or Jeff uh, here who've helped me with some of these home repairs. I tell you, it's ridiculous. All that I have to learn as I prepare our home for years to come. Is this what Jesus means then? Is he as a great master builder? Uh, is he right now building homes for Christians in heaven? This one has a home theater. This one has a two-car garage. I mean, no wonder he hasn't returned. Just think of all the homes he has to build. And who could be, be better to build my home, though, than a carpenter, right? I mean, I've heard people argue this way. Nonetheless, friends, that is not what Jesus means at all. Again, if this 
home is not mansions, but the Father's presence, what does it mean that Jesus then is preparing a place for us? It means that Jesus is preparing access for us, a way for us to come home, if you will. You see, according to the Bible, again, we are not at home. But more than that, the door has been bolted to us. We can't have home, at least apart from God unlocking that door and bringing us in. And as C.S. Lewis puts it, it's not just locked from one side, it's locked from both. Part-time, I teach courses then in uh, New Testament and Old Testament, and and every semester I give my students uh, two rules for Bible interpretation. So if we're going to find out what it means to prepare a place, I'm going to give you two rules that will help us a little, okay? So, which I stole from one of my professors years ago. Usually anything good I have is something else from somebody else I've just stolen liberally. Uh, You you ready? Okay, these aren't exactly two, they're not exactly rocket science. Okay, number one. The number one rule of uh, interpreting the Bible. In order to understand the Bible, one must read the Bible. I told you it's not rocket science. Okay, number two though. Okay, in order to, again, understand the Bible, one must read the Bible. Can't make claims about the Bible, understand it's what it has to say if we've not read the Bible. Number two, if you don't understand what you're reading, keep reading. Friends, how do we understand what Jesus means after he says he goes to prepare a place for us? Well, we keep reading. And what takes place right after this? Jesus' death and resurrection. In other words, the only way we can have a place in the Father's house is if Jesus unbolts the door for us, unless Jesus prepares a way, which is the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Think about it. Jesus gave up his home, his eternal, uninterrupted enjoyment of love between himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit in order to dwell with us, to come to those who are spiritually homeless, to become, in many ways, homeless himself, a world that is cracked and groaning, cut off from full enjoyment of of God's presence, and then only to take that life and to die in that way, to be cut off, not just from his friends, but from his father, prepared, in a different sense, as a final sacrifice, a final sacrifice for human sin, that he might come and welcome those spiritually homeless, those outcasts, exiles, and sojourners into his home, having finally and fully prepared that home for them. This is what Jesus means, friends. In saying he goes to prepare a place, his eyes are not on a mansion, but on the cross. And it's only by that preparation that we might be with him, with his father, forever. Practically speaking. Again, this means that we can give up on preparing a home for us here. Too many of us, and I'm putting myself at the front of the line, are trying so desperately to bring about and protect a sense of home, a sense of the good life here, over-relying on other people's opinions of us, on getting the next promotion, the next check, the next relationship, over-relying on our sense of control, on how happy we are with our physical appearance, how well the kids listen or how satisfying my sex life is. 
We are in an endless cycle of preparation, fixing our lives, fixing ourselves, fixing our homes, hoping there will be a day when it's finally done. And it's exhausting us. Jesus offers rest. A home which you could not prepare or purchase. A home which he has prepared and purchased at infinite cost to himself. A preparation. This leads finally, number four, to a path. Having explained all of this, Jesus says something really important, and it turns out very confusing to his disciples in verse four. And you know the way to where I am going. To which Thomas responds, Ah, actually we don't, Jesus. Thomas is such a fascinating character in the Bible. In John's gospel, he is a picture of loyalty and courage, but he's more famously known for misunderstanding and doubt. After all, we get the phrase doubting Thomas from his character in the Bible. I know a few friends who would say of all the characters in the Bible, it is Thomas that they empathize with the most. Uh, Even while they have moments of strong faith, they carry lots of doubts with them. They argue with God constantly, like Thomas, who is even now in what sounds like a sibling squabble. So I hear a lot of these. Um, uh, No, I don't, Jesus. Uh, Yes, you do. Uh, No, I don't. Yes, you do. Thomas, probably just saying what everyone else in the room uh, was thinking, points out that he has no idea what Jesus is talking about. I mean, how can he know the way if he doesn't even know where Jesus is going? But Jesus' response is, Yes, you do. If I am going to the Father in heaven, you do know the way because you know me. He goes on in one of the most famous lines in the Bible, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, every other religion has a prophet or teacher which claims to show you the way to God, the way to access the divine, if you will. The famous illustration that's often used then is of a mountain of which, uh, which God sits at the top and everyone is just on a different path up that mountain. And even though we are all on a different path, it's, so, it's said uh, up the mountain, we will eventually end up in the same place together. Did I get it right? Probably have heard this before, maybe even used it with others. It's no wonder then that Christians sometimes get a real hard time for their exclusivity, for their exclusive understanding of their religion, especially when they quote this passage. Well, you know, Jesus said he is the only way. It seems, as it, it seems to many as if Christians were just picking their favorite path and saying it was the only way up the mountain. Friends, why then would Christians be so willingly arrogant? It would seem, I should say. Who would seem to be close-minded as to speak as of Jesus as the only way to salvation. Now, I don't think it's arrogant. I don't think it's closed-minded, but that's how it often appears. Well, notice what Jesus is saying here. He isn't just saying, like every other teacher, I will show you a way to God, even the way to God. He is saying something much stronger. What is he saying? I am the way. Let me tell you why this is so significant. It's bound up with Jesus' claim to be God, actually, because if what the rest of the Bible says about, true, about human sinfulness is true, then only God could restore us to God. And the beauty of the gospel, hear this, friends, is not that God is waiting 
at the mountaintop for us to find our way to him. No, the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to find him. He came down to where we are, at the bottom of the mountain, in many ways not looking for him at all to bring us to himself. Jesus doesn't just say he will show us the way to the Father. He is the way to the Father, our Savior, the Lamb of God, the firstborn from among the dead, the mediator of all truth and life is the way for any and all who would come to faith in him. See, the truth and the life here are so significant. I don't have time to unpack these. I don't want to preach another sermon for you. They're bound up actually with the way. These three things are distinct, but nonetheless, they explain in many ways he is the way. He is the place where all truth is found, where all life is found. It's what makes him the way. And so, friends, again, even as Christianity is exclusive, and yes, a Christian must say, there is no other way to God. In other ways, it is extraordinarily inclusive, offering life to anyone, absolutely anyone, not just those who can get on the right path and somehow keep it that way to the end, not the way who just find their way stumbling in the dark to God, but to those who will find him, the God who came to them only because he has found them. Only because he has sought them out. The way who has made the way. He offers life to anyone, absolutely anyone, who will trust in him in the midst of their trouble that they might be where he is forever. The question is, do you know him? If you're not a Christian, I need to ask you again, are you looking to hear something else from God? God cares so deeply for you to make the way clear to you, and not just to say, come follow me in that way, but to become that way, to, be, to make that access for you, to tell you in many ways that the work, the obedience that he will ask of you is as resting in faith in him. Not to earn his approval, but as an act of love, knowing everything has been accomplished already on your behalf. This God is your way. Will you trust in him as the way? Yes, in many ways, it is an exclusive claim, but it is inclusive to people like me, people who don't get things right, who mess up all the time, who couldn't come close to earning God's love? Are you tired of trying to contrive that sense of home for yourself? Will you come to the one who offers you that home and has prepared a place for you in it? Friends, I have to say, though, if you, I just want to speak to the Christians here. If you're some of us, we like to talk about Jesus being the only way in private. But when it comes to it, we, we aren't actually that convinced. I say this to myself, but functionally, we can act as if there are many ways to happiness, many ways to God, and all that matters is we live and let live. I mean, if it makes them happy, we reason, then who am I to judge? Friends, if this is true, the most loving thing isn't to act as if there is another water source somewhere else in this wilderness, some other cure to our cancer, some other path to joy. The most loving thing I could do for my neighbor is to treat my neighbor as if there is only one way to the Father, to pray and persistently work for opportunities to share this way with them. The most loving thing is to live as sojourners and exiles, inviting others home. 
but the courage, conviction, and creativity this requires to live in light of this, to appeal in light of this, it only comes from the gospel itself. And so in closing, I want to listen. I want us together. I want to give a fantastic summary of this good news in a poem from D.A. Carson, inspired by these verses, written as if Jesus was speaking. Carson says of Jesus, I am the way to God. I did not come to light a path, to blaze a trail that you may simply follow in my tracks pursue my shadow like a prize that's cheaply won. My life reveals the life of God, the sum of all he is and does. So how can you, the sons of night, look on me and construe my way as just another road for you to run? My path takes in Gethsemane, the cross, in stark rejection draped in agony. My way to God embraces utmost loss. Your way to God is not my way, but me. Each other way is dismal swamp or fraud. I stand alone. I am the way to God. I am the truth of God. I do not claim. I merely speak the truth as though I were a prophet, but no more, a channel stirred, but God, spirit power of purely human frame. Nor do I say that when I take his name upon my Lips, my teaching cannot err, though that is true, a mere interpreter. I am not some prophet voice of special fame in timeless reaches of eternity. The triune God decided that the word, the self-expression of the deity, would push, put on flesh and blood and thus be heard. The claim to speak the truth, good men applaud. I claim much more. I am the truth of God. I am the resurrection life, it is not, as though I merely bear life-giving drink, a magic elixir, which men might think is cheap because though lavish, it is not bought, a price of life which was fully paid. I fought with death and black despair, for I'm the drink of life. The resurrection mourns the link between my death and endless life sought. I am the firstborn from the dead, and by my triumph, I deal both death to lusts and hates. My life I now extend to men and ply them with the drought that ever, the drought that ever satiates. Religion's page with empty boast is rife, but I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. You are the way, in fact, the truth and the life. And we come to you as those who have tried to seek out life elsewhere. And those of us who are not sure where we're at when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to a relationship with you at all. Or we nonetheless are on our own way. We're seeking our own way. We're trying to prepare a home for ourselves and it's exhausting us. It's causing us to turn others into the enemy and to chew them up, spit them out along the way. God, you are not only the way, you become, you've made a way for us. And I pray that those who have yet to trust in Christ would do exactly that. To give up their selfish pursuits, their attempts at trying to make their own fame, to try and make their own home and to find their home in him. To see that the cross was the only thing that could accomplish that.
to acknowledge not only their spiritual homelessness, but they got themselves into that spot. And they need him to restore. I pray for those who are Christians that they would live as sojourners and exiles, as those who are searching for their home, knowing where it is. Lord, that we would live lives of selflessness, of generosity and courage, not pretending as if there are other ways to happiness and joy, knowing that there's only one truly good life and it is found wrapped up in faith in Christ. Give us wisdom as we seek to walk in step of these things to reevaluate not only our financial priorities, but our relationships. Do we live as those who have found our home in you and are waiting for it in full? Only you can reveal to each heart that is here its need and its next step of obedience. And so we ask that you would do so. And we pray that Christ might be glorified as we continue to walk and step with him this year setting our eyes on the horizon unto his final return. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.